The Cannabis Conversation. A European perspective on the emerging legal cannabis industry. Welcome to the Cannabis Conversation with the News Desai, where we explore the new legal cannabis industry by speaking to the professionals that are helping to shape it. Uh, last week I got caught up with episode 50, I think, and um, in all the excitement I forgot to mention that the Food Standards Agency in the UK has finally given some clarity on what it intends to do with CBD products on UK shelves in relation to the EU novel foods regulations. It's very welcome news to the industry and long overdue. This episode coming up was actually recorded before the FSA announcement, so please excuse any references in the show. We'll actually be digging into what the FSA has said over the next couple of weeks with a few different guests, so hopefully we'll get some more clarity there. Uh, in the meantime, enjoy. Welcome to the Cannabis Conversation with the News Society, where we explore the new legal cannabis industry by speaking to the professionals that are helping to shape it. On today's show, we've got Nick Pateras. Nick is Managing Director of Europe for Materia Ventures. Materia are a medical cannabis and CBD company, which we'll hear more about in a minute. And Nick's formerly of Johnson & Johnson's and various other positions, so gives some useful insight from the CPG perspective. Welcome, Nick. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure, absolute pleasure. Uh, how are you doing today? You right? Not bad, doing great. How about you? Yeah, very good, very good. Cool. So as is tradition, why don't we start with your backstory? You mentioned Johnson Johnson, but mm-hmm. what were you doing before? How did you get into the cannabis industry? What sparked your interest in it? Yeah, so my time at J&J uh, preceded my time in cannabis. I didn't you know, go in cannabis and then even come back. <laughs> it wasn't sucked me in. I was, I was here permanently. So uh, yeah, I spent most of my career at J&J on the CPG side had some exposure to their pharma division as well, which was quite cool. So kind of got a sense of how, you know, a massive healthcare company uh, lives and breathes and and thinks. And then about three years ago, uh, stepped formally into the cannabis space. I've been looking at it for a few months prior to that, but I ended up really pulling the trigger once I felt comfortable that it was the space that appealed to me most. So I joined a uh, cannabis tech company called Lift & Co., based in Canada, um, most well-known for their uh, conferences and uh, consumer expos. And they recently had one. Yeah, they recently had one in Vancouver. So they do two every year, very well attended, very high profile. Um, But the company has also been building out uh, a data business. So it has an online platform that was basically aggregating consumer reviews of cannabis and before that patient reviews and then also uh, cannabis retail training so uh, one of my projects in my during my last uh, year year and a half was actually overseeing uh, a retail training business so we built a curriculum and sold it into a few provinces so you know Ontario for example was our, our largest uh, partner um, today in Ontario if you work in a cannabis retail store you have to have a certification right and there's only one company that uh, has been mandated to deliver it, and that's that was Lift & Co. Right. So that's kind of the feather in, in the, the Lift & Co.'s cap uh, at the moment for retail training specifically. So did that for three years. Uh, you know, we had a nice, a nice growth curve. I joined the company quite early stage. I was employee number eight. The soundbite is I, I left J&J when it was the eighth biggest company in the world by market cap to become employee number eight at Lyft. <laughs> so it was a huge, you know, assimilation yeah, um, yeah, to, yeah. you know, the startup world. Sure. Yeah, so I uh, had a great three years. When I left, the company was about 60 people-ish. Um, we, t- we took the company public on the TSXV as well. And um, yeah, it was an amazing time. 
And then as the Canadian market started to uh, unfold in the year or so after non-medical recreational cannabis was launched, for me, my background is in healthcare and my passion is really more on the medical side of the sector. Mm. And so myself and a few others like Deepak, of course, who I know you've had on the show, mm-hmm. um, we were kind of eyeing some other opportunities even beyond Canada and thinking about where we could apply the lessons we learned. And that's kind of the genesis of Materia. And so I joined the Materia team about nine months ago. And uh, yeah, I'm now Managing Director of Europe and relocated to London to help oversee uh, to oversee our operations here in Europe. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, yeah, as you mentioned, we had Deepak and Michael on the show probably about the beginning of the summer, I think it was. Yeah. And probably early days in, in Materia's uh, sort of young life. How are things now, sort of six months later? Yeah, things are brilliant. Things are brilliant. So we've now got operations in the UK, in uh, Malta, in Denmark, and uh, Germany. And so just to kind of give your listeners the 30-second the overview, so they're, they're caught up in case they didn't hear the Deepak's interview. So basically, the business is a medical cannabis producer and distributor. Yeah. To be clear on production, we don't cultivate. Uh, we are we say we're cultivation agnostic. What we mean by that is that we're able to work with any suppliers across the world who you know meet our requirements, mm-hmm. um, but we don't do the cultivation ourselves. So one of the lessons when we talk about the insights that we try to stack in building the materia business was that a lot of value in Canada we saw flowing downstream from cultivation and resting at the extraction and product formulation because that's where you can actually develop IP mm. and wrap you know some um, wrap a bit of a moat around the business. Mm. So that was kind of one thing we wanted to stack. Um, so we do production in Malta, which basically looks like it's going to be focused on extraction. That serves as the production hub. And then uh, Germany and Denmark serve as our main distribution or sales channels. The UK is more focused on the CBD business, mm-hmm. just because the medical market here is obviously still so small. And so what we're doing there is we're working with big brands that are based in North America and we effectively partner with them to be their distributor across the UK. Um, and so those are our four key markets uh, at the moment. Right. And I imagine that given that you're focusing on that area, a lot of your background at J&J probably helps inform that approach yeah. to cannabis. How are you seeing that in terms of that? Obviously, a very well-established business. And sorry, for the viewers, uh, for the listeners' uh, benefit, CPG stands for Consumer Packaged Goods. It's basically things that you see on the shelves in Sainsbury's and Boots, etc. Yeah, how are you taking that kind of, not old world, but very established world view and, and approaching cannabis and CBD? Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's been good because the, you know, change is obviously, I think it's like a 130-year-old business. I don't know how many tens or I think hundreds of thousands of employees across the world. Like they've, They've a very well established infrastructure, and so the benefit to J and J, my time at J and J was I had exposure to both the CPG side, but also the pharma or prescription based medicines side. So the CPG side kind of supports our C- our own CBD business. Like how do you how do you set up a supply chain? How do you ensure that you're building brands that consumers trust? Like what do you do by way of quality? How do you how do you sell into retailers? All of that stands us in good stead. The uh, pharma angle is much more applicable to our medical cannabis business, obviously. So how do you engage doctors or, or uh, other uh, medical professionals like pharmacists? You know, what objections can you anticipate and how do you handle them? Medicine is a very different uh, type of product, obviously. Um, but J&J had a really good way of thinking about, you know, prioritizing the patient's needs, working backwards. 
understanding how to work with pharmaceutical wholesalers. So, so there's just a lot of insights from from both mm. of those divisions. And so, I mean, it, you know, it's not just my background either. Deepak's spent most of his career in pharma as well. We've got our UK managing director, Peter Poche, who's actually spent about a decade at Pepsi and then a decade at Pfizer. Um, <laughs> so he's got, you know, both lenses as well. Yeah. So yeah, the team's the team's does all right in that, in that way, I think. Yeah, it sounds like a high quality team. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're proud of the team we built. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack there, actually. So I guess one there's two bits and so I don't forget one is around education and the other bit is around regulatory and the start mm-hmm. with regulatory maybe sure so I you know with J&J you know being in those two markets as well as a number of other areas I'm sure but what's the approach to the regulatory back stop or background yeah it's it's funny you know I was reflecting this the other day I mean at J&J um, we had an entire uh, RA or regulatory affairs team as right. a whole department and so their entire job is to be interpreting what the regulations are, what the legislation says, and how to liaise with the regulator. Like we used to be back and forth with Health Canada all the time. Here, there isn't a, an RA professional that isn't also new to cannabis because cannabis is so new. So to an extent, it's, you know, DPAC is obviously very regulatory um, focused and very much an expert in it. You know, myself, I try to spend as much time reading the regulations as possible. So it's very much as a business leader, the difference is it's unto us to be the regulatory experts, right. I would say. So that means spending evenings and weekends like pouring over the regs and trying to read things like case law to understand if there's a justification for a, you know, a specific structure strategy or specific tactic has it been done before has it been done before in cannabis um you know can basically can we defend it if the regulator says can you explain to us why we saw this in the market for example and you have to have a position on that and do you feel it's slightly shifting sands because because it, it, it's so new it's evolving quite rapidly yep and oftenly often sort of slightly reacting late yep to what's going on it can be i mean in canada what we saw was a lot of times the regulator would issue the regulations, companies would interpret it, try to f- obviously try to find ways to play within it, uh, but not be offside. And then you'd see the regulator say, oh, that was obviously a bit of a gap in the language that we didn't intend for you to go out and do that. So now we're going to close that gap. So the, the sand shift or the, the sands shift all the time. Mm. Um, yeah, you just have to be, you have to be flexible. You have to be creative, but also be flexible and not get frustrated when um, you find your foot, you know, trapped in a, in a sinkhole. And pull out. <laughs> Yeah, it must be it must be a bit of a minefield. And so the other the other topic that I just was around education. So I think this is really key, and in part reason why I sort of started this podcast because the general educational awareness and understanding of cannabis it, amongst the population isn't very poor, but equally some pockets of the industry it's not great either. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and when it comes to what you're doing, particularly on the medical side, you need the buy-in of doctors, and it's it's something that comes up at virtually every talk or conference I go to. Yeah. What are you guys doing in that area? Yeah, so we're just starting to lay out a full educational plan right now, um, a roadmap for who are the key audiences we want to speak to throughout the year and what are the key messages we want to deliver. I think the key thing for us, that the foundation of that really is to recognize that it's not just about education for the first time because although people don't really cannabis, as you and I know, people think they know cannabis because they've obviously been conditioned over the last few decades to have some form of stereotype or stigma. Mm. So so it's unlearning exactly first. so you're what you're actually trying to do you're not just educating for the first time and saying let me tell you about this thing of which you've never heard you're actually trying to undo decades of conditioning first and then replace it which is actually a much 
bigger barrier because um, you'll break. And of course, a lot of it is negative perception too. So you're trying to overcome people's instinctive sense of being uh, told or informed that their um, that their views are basically wrong or out of date, mm-hmm. right? So there's there's also like a, a reluctance to accept that they have to relearn something. So that's kind of like part of the reason that we adopt a more cautious and very you know uh, approachable tone in all the education that we do. I think a lot of it has to be about taking being taken seriously as a serious medicine. So it's all about showing what clinical studies have already been done. Uh, you know, we, we've, we've conducted lit reviews and we're, we're very happy and open to, to kind of share those because that's kind of how you get the reception is it's not us just trying to sell product. It's these are studies that have been done all over the world and look at the therapeutic benefits patients have seen. And yeah, so to your question around how do we think about that? I mean, a, you know, a government official definitely wants to hear something different than a medical professional generally. And so you kind of just have to understand what different stakeholders incentives are, what their motivators are, and think about what they're most worried about. Yeah. Um, and we just kind of tailor those key messages to those audiences. Yeah, that's really smart. I think it is very much about tailoring, isn't it? It's not just one message fits all. Yeah. And I think I think we I kind of covered it a bit before. Our view is around, my, one of my views is to, to overcome the stigma, I guess we kind of need to move away from the idea that cannabis is something that has to be smoked. You know, because that's really... That association, particularly with the medical profession, is is inherently not healthy, right? <laughs> so it's very hard to think of it as a health product yep. if you've got that in your mind. Whereas, as you and I both know, that's just one delivery method and actually a kind of outdated delivery method. Exactly, exactly. And I think, you, you know, you would struggle to find many physicians who are comfortable prescribing something that they thought or suspected their patient would smoke or even in some cases vape even. Mm. That, that, that is not, you know, in any way undermine patients who say that smoking is you know, the best ingestion method for them. Totally get it. But generally, obviously, medicine is not something that we would consider being smoked. Mm. And, you know, the, the list of misconceptions goes on and on. I mean, you know, I was just having a talk with a prof- uh, someone who works in cannabis the other day who kept calling CBD or not psychoactive. And it's like, well, that's not, it works on the mind, you know? It's, yeah, and there's a difference between psychotropic and psychoactive. And you can see how if even within this very small industry, there are all these divergent opinions or contradictory facts that people espouse, how someone outside the industry looking in or being engaged by the industry for the first time thinks, this group or this industry doesn't really have it figured out because I hear 10 different things from 10 different people. <laughs> so there's almost a need be- before we kind of get too ambitious in trying to broach our own bubble, figuring out how do we kind of harmonize our knowledge and like have a unified single source of truth because it, that, that doesn't exist at the moment. Yeah. And it doesn't, look, it doesn't look good when we stand up. You, know, you go to a conference, for example, and there's three, uh, three successive presentations and they say three different things. Yeah. It doesn't do anyone any good. No, no, no. I couldn't agree more. Cool. So, I mean, that's great sort of background on what Materia is doing. Obviously, 2019 wasn't a great year for public markets in Canada. But yeah. given the amount of value that was there and the amount of value that is there now, how has that affected you guys? What's your view generally on, on what happened in the, in the markets? And... How has that affected what you guys do? I have a, I don't know if it's an unpopular opinion. I have a different opinion to some of this. I felt that a lot of people were far too greedy in the valuations that they claimed and and how fast they claimed the market would grow. Everyone thinks in Canada the market will be, I don't know, between six to eight billion dollars. I think the most bullish estimate I've seen is about $10 billion at maturity. And some of the projections claimed that the amount of the total market 
that would be registered in the first year was like a quarter. It's never going to be that much in the first year. In Colorado, for example, we just passed year five and the market is still growing, or six, and the market is still growing double digits year over year. Like it's going to be a five to eight to maybe 10 year process until the market is at maturity. So people just really expected the market to grow much faster than it did. And I always thought that was, you know, I mean, I get it. You have to tell a compelling story to raise money and raise capital and you get people excited about supporting your business. But there's also a, a level of expectation management that I think was done fairly irresponsibly. So it's more than a correction. The, the bloodbath that was the last nine months in the capital markets is, you know, somewhat a result of overhype. Now, granted, there are certain things one couldn't expect. You would never have bet that in Canada's largest province, a year after legalization, there would only be 24 stores. No one could have foreseen. So there are things like that that really do. And what was the real reason behind that? Was that just infrastructure? Issues? Yeah, well, we, we Ontario was a bit of a Processing mess. Because, well, Ontario was a bit of a mess because we initially had a government that said they were going to roll out uh, government-run stores. That was the, the Ontario Cannabis Store, which is now the online-only a vendor, but they said they were actually going to run their own stores as well. Then there was an election in the summer prior to legalization. Uh, the Labour Party uh, lost that election. The Conservatives came in and said, we're going to issue private retail licenses. So that delayed the process a bit. Mm. And then that same government, right before the uh, the application portal was set to open, uh, claimed there's not enough supply, and so we're going to limit it to a lottery. We're going to issue only 25 licenses. <laughs> And so people were going, every other province is issuing, you know, dozens of licenses. Alberta at that point had, you know, were in the hundreds. And they were going, how can you see the supply situation so differently than some of the other provinces? Anyway, so they had a lottery system and a change of government. And that basically was why there were so few licenses issued. Right. They went through a second lottery, which also turned into a whole legal fiasco as well. And today, I think it's still... Th- about 30 licenses, 30 stores open across the whole province. We're, we're what are we, 16 months in? And, so and a very strong black market still. And still a strong black market because prices in the legal market are too high and the quality is getting better, but still there's a gap between legal and illegal cannabis. Mm. So all of this kind of thing, yeah, just it slows down the market growth. Mm. Just but, things like that. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's interesting. So it's, a mix of over-egging it, yeah. maybe to pump stock if we're going to be cynical. cynical. Yeah. And then some poor execution. Poor execution. Over, regu- overpaying for assets. Yeah, overpaying for assets for sure. Re- I mean, yeah, if you look at, I won't name names, but for the financially miser or financially curious, I mean, take a look at the amount of goodwill on some of these companies. Yes. It's, it's insane as, you know, as a percentage of assets, how much some of these big companies are registering goodwill. Yeah. It's remarkable. So that's going to be written down at some point. Yeah, regulatory twist you couldn't expect, like fewer licenses. Uh, I think these the 2.0 rollout, everyone's much more cautious because it is, it's much more confusing and complex an operation to produce cannabis beverages or chocolates than it is to just grow flour, dry it, cure it, and ship it. So that's why we've seen a pretty tepid 2.0 rollout <laughs> so far. You know, Canopy obviously just announced a delay in their beverages. So 2020 is a, a much more cautious. Yeah. Because 2019 was, you know, like I said, it was a bloodbath. Yeah. 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 And how has that trickled down to, to what you guys did? Have you noticed an impact on, on materia? From, from what I'm seeing, I, I think the... Money has dried up a little bit. Yeah. There was a lot of stuff coming from Canada and certainly a lot of Canadian backers or projects in Europe have had to pull out or you know, yeah. tighten their belts. 
there is a kind of ripple effect, I guess. Yeah, I think the the overall the net impact has probably been favorable to us. Mm. And I'll give you a reasons why. One is there's still a belief in the thesis that cannabis is going to be big globally. Now investors are looking for what the new opportunities are. So when we talk about being an extraction-focused business in Europe, where the growth of the market's growth is all still ahead of us, I think investors see that as, as generally broadly an interesting investment opportunity. So that's favorable to us. They are probably more cautious and meticulous than they would have been, let's say, four years ago, because some of them have, you know, suffered. And this the 2019 has still been a bit of a sting for them. Um, but broadly, having a European folks extraction business seems to be, you know, an interesting conversation starter at the least. The second thing is that um, from a supplier standpoint, some of our suppliers are in Canada, and I think that they are much more keen to work with a European customer because it's just another way to diversify their revenue mix. Mm. It's another sales channel for them. And the domestic market is tiny. And so. the domestic market is small, and every, everyone's trying Not to tiny small. Yeah, small, <laughs> small. Yeah, but everyone's trying to figure out. Well, now that we, you know, there's there is. Uh, visibly going to be an overcapacity issue, an overproduction issue, where do we place our product? So to be able to hold our hands up and say, you know, we're a customer that will take some of that, uh, that supplies API, that's a conversation that interests a lot of LP. So in that sense, it's been favorable to us. I think overall, it's been, it's been, it's been positive for for those two reasons. Mm. Yeah, that's kind of how I would summarize it. That's good. That's it's good to hear a positive story. And so thinking about the kind of market, I guess, in general, are you, are you seeing, Things move in Europe. Are they slower than expected, or I mean, Europe is talking about Europe as a kind of single thing is very it, weird. Anyway, yeah. yeah. were you hoping for a quicker pace of change in certain jurisdictions, or you know, what's your general hope for you? I think Europe, on the whole, is probably growing a little more slowly than people expected. But to really get into the, the weeds of it, you you almost need to look at it market by market, as you're alluding to the UK obviously grown a lot uh, more slowly than people thought which is actually interesting because the the sprint from the you know the public outcry that happened as a result of the Billy Caldwell and Alfie Dingley incidents the the steps between that government medical review law being drafted and then implemented that was insanely fast that happened in about half a year and i've never seen a market move that quickly since then obviously the framework was so restrictive that the uk's had practically no prescription so uk is a good example of it being slower than we would like i think people look at i look at france as an, another example of a, of a country that will obviously come online one day but instead they've they will be putting in place a very limited experiment mm-hmm. um, right over the course of two years. And so another example of a market that pro- people probably could have been betting on growing faster. Um, on the other hand, you've got Germany, which uh, is still growing, is, is demonstrating healthy growth. Um, you know, very attractive market for a number of reasons because of the reimbursement system and and uh, were they at sort of thirty, forty thousand patients? Yeah, I mean, numbers get thrown around a little bit. Forty to fifty thousand patients is generally what's thrown around. It, it's easier to almost look at it from a dollar perspective on how much uh, was reimbursed. The market in twenty nineteen will, including private prescriptions, maybe be about a hundred. 120 to 150 million euros, which is all right. Um, a very healthy growth on 2018. Yeah. Um, again, you know, supply shortages is, is a common feature of the German market too. So some of that gap will get closed as more players enter the market. So it is a bit, it is a bit country by country. Uh, but thematically, though, yeah, I think Europe is just going about it a little bit more cautiously than 
some people would, would hope. Yeah, which is which is really a shame for patients who are effectively losing out. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, it, the UK, going back to the UK again as an example, the Medical Review of Cannabis was prompted by two high-profile cases of patients not being able to access their medicine and actually having it confiscated. So you'd think that the government's approach would be to recognize, like, what we really prioritize is making sure patients have access. And the framework here is so restrictive that mm. it's almost impossible to get access. So you kind of recognize it's, it was all, almost lip service mm. to put the system in place that they did. And um, it, yeah, patients just are not a priority. And I get it, right? As a, I get the, the government's response on saying, we need to treat this like any other medicine without adhering to certain standards. We don't feel comfortable broadening access or lowering the barrier. But there's data from other countries that can be seen. We've had medical cannabis in Canada since 2001. The, the states have had cannabis. In, well, California's had medical cannabis since 1996. Israel's um, got that. Israel since the early 90s. Yeah. Um, data, yeah, it? exactly. Like there's data there that would maybe not close the full gap between how you treat it now and, and you know, completely unregulated access, but it can be a lot better than Yeah. Us. I mean, look, this is a whole topic in itself, but the idea that we, we maybe need a different framework to evaluate medicine in relation to, to things like cannabis. Totally. Really struggle to fit it into the current paradigm of randomized control tests, and yeah, double exactly. blind placebo and things that i forget the names of cool okay well i mean that's that's a good summary on the on the medical market on the cbd wellness market however and just to go back to that i would assume that germany is probably the most important market on the medical side in europe and probably will remain so for a while by a long shot yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. but on the cbd wellness side is, is the uk i assume probably one of the biggest pretty big biggest? pretty big yeah it's looking around 500 million yeah, exactly. That's actually just about what our estimate is as well. Mm. Very big, very fragmented. I think a lot of people now are basically trying to just slap a CBD label onto any bottle and just ship it on, on to pillows, lampshades, everything. <laughs> pillows, lampshades. Yeah, I tweeted that actually. We had a bit of a chat about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of ridiculous. I, I heard this morning about someone getting offered a CBD croissant. I mean, yeah, there's there's just everything. So there's two ways of thinking about that. One is, does that really undermine? like the functional value that CBD is actually supposed to offer and in some way kind of present it almost as a bit of a joke and like a, a trend that really has absolutely no substance to it, which would be a great shame because we know that CBD does have, th- CBD does have a lot of therapeutic value. On the other side of it, you know, does it raise awareness of the molecule in a way that, you know, otherwise couldn't be seen if it wasn't such a, such a massive trend? Uh, we we side on the more uh, serious side where mm. the products that we sell will be, you know, uh, those that people will be able to find a therapeutic value in it. And so, yeah, we're, we're trying to kind of cut through the noise a little bit because it's super fragmented. And a lot of the products right now are all exactly the same with a different label on it. Some of the brands out there are not really brands. It's just like a basically a logo. That's it. And then, of course, you have this complexity around novel foods. Mm. which brings in a whole other set of questions around what decisions do we make about how we launch in the market? You know, how do we engage with the regulator and, and so on? And um, at the moment, you know, what we've done is we've tried to be very novel foods compliant insofar as we're not doing anything ingestible until we have some kind of clarity from the FSA or another body. But it does, again, playing in this market, you watch other players maybe not give too much, paying too much heed to the novel food regulations and you're kind of going well i'm holding myself to a different standard but you're thinking should i am i am i being too cautious not you know aggressive enough in the in the landscape where i'm seeing other people 
basically completely disregard the regulations. Well, is it, is it, I guess that's a how, what kind of time horizon view you take on it, right? If you, if you're, right. If you're short termist, make hay while the sun is shining before the <laughs> cops come and shot down your exactly your garage, you know, operation or. You think, well, I want to build a business that's going to last for a few years, and and that's what we kind of always always strive build to build some credibility, provenance, high quality. I think that's what's going to win out. I mean, it's unsustainable to have the is it like seven hundred plus brands in the UK or something crazy? It's something it's, mental, um, which is just insane. Yeah, but I mean, it is you know again function of there are very few barriers to entry at the moment. You just <laughs> you can white label white something, label anything, and you just CBD will be out next week if. Uh, Yep. If any of you listeners want to buy some. So do you think some of the winners are going to be, I mean, for you, I guess, because what you do, you don't, you're not growing or anything. You, you can choose your supplier, right? So you go for the the one that has the, the, the right level of compliance for you and the right price and the right quality and all that stuff. So yeah. you, you can choose really. Yeah. And there are no shortage of supply on the CBD side. I mean, there are no shortage of supply. It's about... Yeah, working with those that you... So that's the other thing too, especially in this industry too. There is a lot of assessment and and thorough vetting done on the quality of our suppliers and our partners and are they compliant? And it's a question I didn't have to ask myself at J&J as much, partly because the relationship's already there and there's long-standing agreements in place with the entire infrastructure of, of J&J's system. But in cannabis, where everyone's starting for the first time, and there and there are obviously a lot of actors that are you know in it for a quick buck. You have to be extremely, extremely cautious. Mm. We've uh, we've come close to the fire a couple of times, and thankfully managed to avoid it. But you know, you, you feel the heat sometimes, and you recognize, yeah, that's actually a a, a partner I, I don't want as a partner. Yeah, that's good to to kind of do that due diligence, I guess. You have to, yeah. yeah. So coming towards the end, some kind of crystal ball gazing now. What do you see for 2020? What What do you want? What do you see happening? What do you want to see happening in globally or in? Well, let's, let's talk about Europe in specifically. Right. So I would love in Europe. I would love to see a few tweaks to some of the frameworks. Obviously, to broaden patient access. We talked about the UK a couple of times. Obviously, you know, top of the list for me. I would love to see Denmark. Uh, make some adjustments to their trial program. Mm -hmm. Um, We're now two years in and uh, there's a mid-trial review coming up. And would you mind just quickly talking about Denmark? Because I hear it often being trumpeted as a good example of um, of compassionate kind of compassionate giving. So the way Denmark's set up, they have a four-year trial program. It started on January the 1st, 2018. So we've just passed the midpoint mark. And effectively what it allows is physicians to prescribe for um, any condition, there are certain kind of uh, recommended qualifying conditions, but essentially physicians can use their own judgment, which is in itself a positive sign. They also have a reimbursement system whereby patients are able to get up to 50% of the medicine covered as well, uh, which is you know not common in North American markets. If you actually, if you're a terminally ill patient in Denmark, it's uh, full coverage. So there's a few things like that that are, that are really good. And then in addition, the Danish government is just extremely supportive of medical research as well. So they've been helping uh, companies set up trials, uh, I think helping subsidize some of the research as well. They just really are trying to go about it in a way that's not just about doing the bare minimum, but really trying to make sure patients have access and also 
uh, very much trying to encourage innovation in the space. They're very much trying to actually be a cannabis leader. And so that's why, you know, we think it's a very attractive market, super supportive government. And it's why we kind of chose that as a you know, sales channel alongside Germany. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because when you describe that, it strikes me that the UK's approach is kind of, okay, in my mind, this is a bad thing. And you really have to go and prove that it isn't kind of where. That's exactly it. Whereas, whereas the Danish government already kind of probably, like their approach is so much softer in that they, they recognize the therapeutic value in cannabis. There's certain research that they want to see for sure, but they're, it's much more about holding hands with industry mm. as opposed to making industry wait months to get a meeting. Yeah. And so yes, and just for the rest of the 2020, are you, so you, so you mentioned more, more stuff from, from Denmark. Yeah. How about... I'd love to. I'd love to also just kind of see some kind of harmonisation on, on a regulatory basis across Europe at the moment, because the markets do have completely. Some of them have completely different regulatory nuances. Little things like you know um, how product is stored, what's on the label, you know what kind of certification you need, and so on. And playing being a pan-European business. Um, it gets complex because you're trying to basically try to stitch an operation in one country with an operation in another. We're trying to sell to one another or do business in some way together. It would be nice if that kind of thing became harmonized a little bit. I don't think that'll happen in 2020, <laughs> but if it, if the process begins in 2020, yeah. that would be a positive thing. Yeah, harmonization would be would be lovely. Would be really lovely. And if Europe, I mean, Europe is not going to think like this this year but if it wants to be some kind of a cannabis leader it should start thinking this way i don't think we're going to get there by the end of this calendar year but if you contrast it with let's say the us where there's already pretty strong conversation around the fact that they want to be cannabis leaders if they do they should really be cautious about how they're regulating their own their own country because if i'm a us operator right now and i'm playing in 10 states i'm playing in 10 different markets you don't want to have barriers within a country. Mm. You want to be able to allow companies to scale as big as they can across a certain geography so that they can then dominate other geographies. Yeah. Which is why things like, just to talk about 2020 for a second in the US, like that's why things like the States Act, if I was a US actor, I wouldn't be supporting the States Act at all because it actually codifies the uh, state-specific uh, differences. Which yeah. I, I wouldn't want. Yeah, 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 yeah. My view is that Federal legalization, I guess, 2020 is a big year in the US with the election and various Trump-related things going on. But if federal legalization kind of keeps the really, really big guys out of the market, I suppose, so maybe it gives other people a chance to develop their own businesses in the meantime. You mean not not federally legalizing? Yeah, not federally, yes. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Because I imagine Amazon's just going to buy everything. <laughs> Probably. Probably. Then <laughs> you're right I mean, to that point because then... If you don't have it, then the big pharma companies can't really step in. I mean, again, unless they feel that there is a route for them to do so in a way that doesn't get them offside with the banks, doesn't get them offside with their exchanges. Sorry, devil's in the details. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Okay, well, my traditional last question is, what did your parents say when you told them you were moving into the cannabis industry? My mother was super supportive. I think she thought and still thinks it's extremely exciting, extremely innovative, and is generally quite proud. Um, my dad is more apathetic, but calls it MedPod. Asks me about how the MedPod business is going. And I said, that it's not the right term to use, Dad. Not only does no one use it, <laughs> but um, I would never go up to a patient and say, what MedPod product are you using? So I don't, I don't even know where he came up with that term. So he just asks about it, um, you know, as an open curiosity and generally doesn't seem to 
mind out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> good to hear, good yeah. to hear. Well, Nick, that's been really great. I mean, we could talk for a lot longer, actually, on a lot more topics. So we'd love to have you back again in you know six months or so. Yeah, I would love that. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Cool. Cheers. Cool.